Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm back after being in India for a bit. A big thanks to Roxanne Escobales, editor of The World Today, for hosting the show while I was away. This week, we're once again discussing the Middle East, but taking a different angle on this, specifically Iran's role in the current conflict in Gaza and beyond. Alongside Iran's support for Hamas in Gaza and for Hezbollah in Lebanon, its influence is felt across the region. It has proxies active in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, all part of what it calls the axis of resistance to Israel and the West. As Israeli ground forces move deeper into Gaza, will Iranian ambitions be the deciding factor in the question of whether the conflict escalates into a wider regional war? That's one thing we'll be talking about. Many people have asked exactly that. And we'll also talk about ongoing events in neighboring Iraq, a country where Iran's power and influence has only grown since the US-led invasion in 2003. Some call Iran the real winner of that war. This week at Chatham House, we had our Iraq Initiative Conference, the fourth year we've done that, a terrific gathering for two days. We'll talk about some of the critical issues that came up and discuss where the country is going. Joining me down the line is Shashank Joshi, the Economist Defence Editor. Welcome back. Hi, Brahman. Thanks so much for having me on again. Great to have you here. Joining us as well is Dr. Sanam Vakil, the Director of our Middle East and North Africa programme, often on this podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me back, Bronwyn. Great to have you here as well. And finally, in the studio with me is Dr. Renard Mansours, a senior fellow with our MENAR program. Welcome. Thanks, Bronwyn. Very good to have you and well done with the conference yesterday, you and Sanam. Well, let's start off with this question of Iran's role in Gaza and beyond in the region. And Sanam, perhaps I can start with you of, of just perhaps teasing out for us what role Iran is playing in the current Hamas-Israel conflict. It is a, a controversial question because you have uh, many different opinions. Um, in this current conflict, uh, Iran uh, should be known as a longtime supporter, backer of Hamas. And uh, Hamas is part of Iran's broader support network known as the Axis of Resistance that includes groups like Lebanon's Hezbollah, um, other groups in Iraq, the Houthis in Yemen, and uh, also proxies in Syria. Uh, Iran has interestingly disavowed um, its role and participation on uh, the horrific attacks of October 7th. And uh, it is trying to, uh, at the same time, use uh, the attacks and use the war um, as an opportunity to push forward with its longer term objective, uh, which is to weaken Israel um, and the U.S.'s role in uh, the Middle East. And it's got a closer relationship with Hezbollah than it does with Hamas by some way. And Hezbollah, obviously, a significant military force. What do you make of the shelling and the skirmishes that there have been over the northern Israel border? Uh, well, Hezbollah, um, it, it plays a very important role. It's a partner with Iran. Um, it has larger influence than uh, is often described and ascribed to Hezbollah. Hezbollah and Israel uh, had a, a big conflict back in 2006. And that was a, a, a moment where we saw Hezbollah's power and potential um, against Israel. Uh, and there's a lot of expectation, or there has been, that Hezbollah might join in this conflict and, and we might see a broader regional war. Hassan Nasrallah, Hezbollah's leader, uh, last Friday 
much anticipated speech. Very long speech. Very long, far too long for for what he said. But he made clear, interestingly, that uh, alongside Iran, he too was not a a party to the October 7th attacks. But like Iran, uh, their goals are uh, to lessen the impact of Israel's military incursion by perhaps provoking and distracting on the northern border. Um, And I don't think that for the time being, uh, he intends to escalate um, and instead, uh, like Iran, um, is playing a longer game, perhaps preparing for a longer term confrontation as the war might take other turns. Thanks for that. And Shashank, how do you weigh up this question of escalation, which has been there right from October the, the 7th, of whether this is going to go wider uh, and particularly go north and bring in Iran and so on? In the first week after the October 7th attacks, I was much more nervous that Hezbollah would enter the conflict and we would see a significant conflict, uh, in part because it made military sense for Hezbollah to act whilst Israel was unprepared, mobilizing, distracted, even if it wasn't aware of Hamas's actions uh, in terms of foreknowledge. The mood in Israel has changed a little bit from the conversations me and my colleagues at The Economist have had with Israeli officials. They are a bit more relaxed about the prospect of Hezbollah coming in. They were reassured by what they heard from Nasrallah, as as we just heard, although, of course, acutely conscious that escalation is still a possibility. And indeed, uh, on November 5th or 6th, I think we saw rockets launched from Lebanon reaching deeper into Israel than at any time since 2006. And I think there's still a reminder there that the, the risk of escalation hasn't gone away. The critical variable here, I think, is the nature of the Israeli military campaign against Hamas and how successful it is. Uh, In a world in which Israel is in a quagmire in Gaza, uh, struggling to quell Hamas and destroy tunnels, facing regional opprobrium, Iran can perhaps sit back and relish that outcome from its perspective. In a world in which it's more successful, and it looks as though the Hamas military leadership and its command centres in northern Gaza are at risk of being destroyed, That is one of Hezbollah's red lines that has been set in the last couple of weeks. That is a big problem for Iran because, of course, it takes aim at one critical pillar of the axis of resistance, as they call it. Uh, And so I think a great deal does depend on the days and weeks ahead in the course of Israel's campaign. I'm going to take this as the first usage of the word quagmire, uh, that word that comes into many military discussions. Just on on Hezbollah, do you regard it as being on call, if you like, uh, to calls from Tehran? I'm conscious that the relationship is complex. And whilst the relationship between Iran and the IRGC in particular and Hezbollah is closer than that between many other militant groups in the region in Iran, it is not necessarily at Iran's beck and call. It would be very difficult, I think, for Hezbollah to resist strong, sustained pressure by Iran to enter the conflict. Hezbollah depends for its most advanced military capabilities on Iran. For instance, if you look at its rocket arsenal, um, yes, some of that is domestically manufactured, but the increasing proportion of that rocket arsenal, which is precision-guided, which is perhaps one of the most serious military concerns for Israel, that is is, uh, a function of Iranian guidance kits that have been sent to Lebanon. So that's just one example, I think. Uh, And so if there was serious sustained pressure by Iran under circumstances where they thought Hamas was on the cusp of defeat or the picture for Iran was extremely dire, it would be difficult for me to imagine Hezbollah's leadership resisting that. But but I I, I certainly defer to those who know the political subtleties of um, Hezbollah's decision-making better than I do. 
Well, I, I, we're going to come on to that. But the reason we're talking about Iran so much in this podcast and generally is obviously because of this fear of escalation, not just uh, with Israel, but then that that would bring the US in, bring the wider region in, that this this would become something uh, very, very hard to control. Uh, at the moment, we're sketching out a more cautious picture, though. Renard, can I bring you in here? And I'd like, with all your expertise in Iraq, just to sketch out for us the role that Iran plays in the region, because it has been a huge beneficiary of that, the fall of Saddam Hussein, hasn't it? And it has extended its influence enormously in 20 years. Yes, it certainly has. It's become the dominant political, economic, security foreign actor in Iraq. It's developed dozens of armed groups across the state and sort of society space that it uses. But also Iraq is an important bank for Iran. Iraq's budget, Iran... Literally. Literally a bank. Uh, And and when we've seen Iraq making hundreds of millions uh, a month through uh, Iraq. So Iraq is integral for, for, for Iran, also on the security side, it's on its border. Um, and so we have all of these different groups, and they're transnational, some of these groups. And this is you know, part of an accept project that we're working on at Chatham House, looking at what is the logic of violence that these groups use. We see a lot of missile strikes, right? We, we, we see strikes from Syria, from Iraq, and then we see the Americans retaliating. Until now, that logic of violence still seems to be within the realms of political messaging, to say we're here, we have these capabilities, but there isn't a strong intent to kill yet. Now, of course, the Americans will say they don't, they're not as good, and, and, and so they're unable to. But there is a kind of, that is, I think, where the debate is on whether Iraq will turn into a playground for the broader sort of Iran-U.S. Uh, conflict as we've seen in the past. And what would that mean? Being a playground, we don't mean it in the conventional legal no, sense. No, it would be a it would be destabilizing. It would see things uh, like Iranian rocket attacks, U.S. attacks. I mean, Americans killed Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards command leader, the general in Baghdad in the airport. Uh, so it would be immensely destabilizing for Iraq and the region if if this does escalate in that way. Sanam, how should we assess Iran's ambitions in this? Um, In the light of its recent deal brokered by China with Saudi Arabia, a pact at least, or an agreement to be on speaking terms, how does that fit in? Because they have been the two rivals in this region. Well, um, I think it's important to situate Iran's goals within a domestic context. Um, Iran is motivated above all uh, by regime security and stability. And for over four decades, it sees itself geographically situated in a region that is hostile to it. That is the worldview in Iran. Obviously, every other country in the region sees Iran as offensive. And, and you know, that makes things much more difficult in diplomacy and, and, and deterrence harder uh, vis-a-vis Iran. Um, but against a backdrop of security and stability, we, we have to think about um, Iran's broader tensions with the United States, and particularly since the Trump administration withdrew from the Iran nuclear agreement in 2018, tensions accelerated significantly, uh, and Iran was subject to uh, what are known as maximum pressure sanctions. All entities, if not uh, most government officials, are now sanctioned by the U.S. government and Europe and the U.K. in in different orders. And since then, more um, decisively, the Islamic Republic 
has been trying to push back against maximum pressure economically in Iraq um, and in other states. Um, militarily, it has shown um, its ability uh, to pressure its neighbors in, in and across the Gulf of UAE and Saudi Arabia were um, subject to Iranian missile attacks and, and attacks on shipping and tankers in 2019 and 2020. So it's in this context um, that Iran has also been looking to restore diplomatic ties with the UAE and Saudi Arabia, and it succeeded to do that with the UAE. Um, but Saudi Arabia was a harder not to crack, and, and tensions, of course, are historical, uh, but also structural. Um, and the 2023 March Agreement brokered by China was a very important turning point for Iran. Um, it has restored ties with almost all countries across the Middle East, and, and it sees uh, that as a sign of its stability, its regional um, integration. And of course, that showcases the limits of American power um, and American influence in the Middle East. I'm really struck by the tone of, if you like, stability almost, but of, of careful calculation that's coming into this, this conversation. And Shashak, I wondered if you agreed with that. I mean, this is a, a picture of Iran forging these alliances and, and so on. And yet for other countries, and Israel is one of them, they're seeing spikes of tension, of aggression, whether it is um, in Lebanon or Yemen or whatever. It's all very calculated violence. And to people looking at this from a non-specialist perspective or who are not familiar with the region may think a rocket is a rocket. But of course, it depends on so many other factors. Who fired the rocket? You know, was it Hezbollah? Was it Hamas in southern Lebanon? Where did it land? Was it Shaba Farms in an area where there is a history of almost ritualistic exchange of fire? Or was it deeper into Israel uh, in, in a way that signals a novel breach of previous red lines? Uh, was it sustained? Was it retaliatory, tit for tat? Or was it unprovoked? And of course, we see this, I thought, a really interesting example of on October 31st of a launch from, from Yemen. Uh, a suspected Houthi launch uh, may have been an Iranian launch, but we can't we can't know for sure without without more evidence. That was this astonishing long range ballistic missile launch from Yemen towards Israel, and on the one hand, it was unprecedented. This is, from, by my calculation, the longest range ballistic missile firing in war we've ever seen in history at all. Full stop. Uh, and it's coming out of the Houthis. Uh, it's intercepted by Israel's Arrow missile defense system, the first time that missile defense system is ever used in anger for a surface-to-surface -surface missile. And it was intercepted for the first time ever for any interception in what we call exo-atmospheric conditions, in other words, to you and me in space. So on the one hand, this is this extraordinary missile launch that appears to be highly escalatory. But on the other hand, it is quite obviously symbolic because it's a single law, you know, it's a single barrage. It's launched from, from Yemen, which is seen by everyone and the rules of the game as being a less escalatory and sensitive launch point than if you do the same thing from Lebanon or Syria. And I'm really interested in how all sides are manipulating these tacit understandings to try to ratchet tensions up, but absolutely avoid a major spike in violence that would threaten all of their interests prematurely. Bernard, calculated violence, you were nodding as he said that. You agree with this picture? I think that's right, yeah. I mean, it, Iran, it's, it's its neighborhood. It needs to be more strategic. It can't play whack-a-mole right now. 
um, it's too dangerous. So it's always done this. It's it's always it's looking into the de decades in advance, not the next day. And that's why it's been so successful relative to other countries. Shashank, just take us into the, the the nuclear ambitions. I feel I've spent quite a bit of my life one way or the other in Tehran and and uh, Geneva, waiting to see if that deal ever got done. It did. It then got undone, as we know in the Trump years. What where do Iran's nuclear ambitions stand now? I think there's three interesting things, Bronwyn. One of them is even before this war, as you know very well, um, Iran's nuclear program was dramatically expanding beyond the limits of the uh, JCPOA, the nuclear deal that was signed in 2015 and abrogated uh, famously by the Trump administration in 2018. So we were already in a pretty bad place, right? Iran had accumulated enriched uranium at levels that you and I, had we been looking assessing these 10 years ago when we were tracking the nuclear program would have thought, my God, this is a huge problem, a crisis, and a risk of an Israeli airstrike is imminent. Now it's just background noise. The second thing is all of this is occurring amid a sense of domestic flux in Iran with reformists sidelined, the aftermath of serious protests, regime insecurity, and the looming prospect of succession with the supreme leader quite old, ailing, potentially will die at some point. And one question is, if the IRGC consolidates its grip on power in Iran, it has been the dominant force behind the Iranian nuclear program for so many years, for decades. So what does that mean for Iran's nuclear ambitions? And the third thing uh, is this war itself and what that means for the nuclear program. And I'd say on the one hand, it means if you're an Israeli official, you're looking at Iran and thinking, we misjudged Hamas and its genocidal intentions on October 7th we're not going to make the same mistake. And, and I'm already seeing Israeli officials suggest the Hezbollah problem has to be dealt with. Even if Hezbollah doesn't attack them, maybe they have to preemptively attack Hezbollah. And the same dynamic will be going on with Iran. Specifically with Iran's nuclear program, I mean, should we assume that Iran essentially has the bomb? Well, it's a threshold state. It has advanced nuclear technology. It's worked on warhead technology. And if you're an Iranian official and you see that and you know that, uh, and you are also seeing this incredible flux with your proxy groups, maybe Hamas being defeated. How are you going to revise your assumption about the utility of a nuclear bomb for regime security? And I fear the likelihood of an Iranian uh, uh, decision to break out has gone up. I'm not saying it's likely or probable, but it has gone up now. Sanam, Shashank was saying that the Supreme Leader, he was describing the instability, the concern about the regime, about succession. He said the Supreme Leader potentially will die at some point. I think without heresy, we can say he will. <laughs> is, how is Iran going to manage this transition? I just want to come back to something Shashank said, because I strongly agree that the likelihood of uh, an Iranian breakout is increasing. It began uh, in, to accelerate in my mind through the war in Ukraine, where I think that um, Iran has looked at Russia and Russia's position and seen the value of nuclear weapons. And I think now, um, as Shashank laid out with regards to the proxies, it's highly likely that Iran will accelerate its program, depending on the trajectory of, of uh, tensions um, between Iran and Israel, particularly if they become quite direct and kinetic. Um, but to the domestics, um, you know, we've been sort of Khamenei watching for quite a while. Myself included have thought um, his death would be earlier than it is. Clerics live a long life, comfortable life, they say in Tehran. And uh, that's the joke on the streets. Uh, the problem is we don't know exactly how the succession is going to be managed. And I think that's what is creating um, a lot of internal pressure 
there is a constitutional mandate for the process that requires a body known as the Assembly of Experts to nominate and elect uh, the next Supreme Leader. But, you know, anything and everything is on the table. Uh, Khamenei hasn't designated a successor, nor has he sort of winked at anybody. Um, there are going to be elections in Iran in uh, the spring of next year, parliamentary elections, but also assembly of expert elections. And these are going to be important to watch, not because we're suddenly going to see a swath of reformists coming into the assembly of experts, but these candidates will be the individuals that will likely elect or select the next Supreme Leader. And um, the body is primarily conservative. And we also, the assumption is that the next Supreme Leader will come from within that body himself. So people who are blocked or barred from running, like uh, former President Hassan Rouhani or Hassan Khomeini, uh, the grandson of Ayatollah Khomeini, um, could be sort of indicative of, of future candidacy. Well, we'll have to wait and see, as you're saying, but let's turn now to talk about Iraq directly. We've mentioned it already, but let's uh, go straight for that question. Chatham House has, as I said before, been running a two-day conference this week about Iraq and where it is uh, just a bit over 20 years after the US-led invasion. And Renard, I wondered if you could take us into that and the state of the country at the moment, and indeed the state of its relations with the US. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've, this is 20 years since 2003. So that's been, a lot of discussion has actually been looking back. What can we learn? Uh, Iraq is a country like many in the region that go through these cycles of conflict, where you have a military victory, a political settlement, uh, that just collapses. And it's, this has happened multiple times in the last 20 years. What has been missing? And something that the discussions have surround, been concerning and, and sort of talking about we've been, at this conference have been the issue of accountability. How do you install accountability into a political settlement after a military victory? What, what, does, that, what does that mean? So this means uh, you can have democracy. You can have uh, elections. What do you mean by that? The, the basic thing of people electing. Yes, people electing leaders. You can have you you could have elections. You could have a judiciary. You can have freedoms enshrined in a constitution. But if you have elites with impunity, if you don't have the rule of law, that democracy isn't going to succeed, and it has not succeeded in Iraq. That's the state that we're in. Uh, so at the moment, things seem okay in Iraq. It's relatively stable. We don't have groups like ISIS and, and, and that conquering territory. The economy is okay based on an oil price that's been relatively stable. But the roots of violence are still sort of still there. The roots of conflict are still there. So what we're doing at the Iraq Initiative at these conferences is trying to think outside the box in more imaginative ways. How can we, knowing that political settlements based af after immense violence don't work, how do we start actually putting accountability in? How can we agree to put a bit more rule of law and to start to sort of make sure that there are checks and balances on all of Iraq's leaders and the elites to ensure a, a bit more of a sustainable uh, reform program moving forward that could ultimately change this trajectory of conflict and cycles of conflict? This is so interesting because what you're describing is, is what the U.S., if you like, jumped over in the beginning, hoping all these things would come to pass. How, what are the kind of suggestions you're coming up with? Can you have a bit more rule of law. The U.S. had a lot of leverage that it could have used. The U.K. had leverage with Iraq's leaders that it could have used. Which years are you talking about? We're talking about the beginning, 2003, 4, 5. Six, you know, in those yeah, years, yeah. It, was, it, was, it was a frontier. It was a free-for-all. Uh, and, and, and so, the, you know, the original sin, or sort of the long 2003 in, in, in that way, uh, is still being felt. 
Um, and even today, in Iraq, the UK and US and others, there's, there's hundreds of millions being spent on reform programs in the security sector, trying to deal with these armed groups that we're talking about, in the economic, financial reforms. But that political will to actually move towards genuine democracy is not there, because at the core of all of this is the political nature of corruption in the country. Corruption is proliferated, and corruption is killing, right? We did a research on corruption in the health ministry that saw that 70 to 80% of medicine is fake or, or, or counterfeit. So it's about installing and ensuring anti-corruption and making that a, a priority from the beginning. As soon as that political settlement is reached, as soon as those elites are brought together, this is true for many conflicts, including when we talk about what will happen after, you know, with, with Israel and Palestine, a p- political settlement isn't enough. There needs to be accountability. And these are some of the mechanisms that you need, the judiciary, checks and balances, uh, and, 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 and really some of the foundations of, of democracy beyond the trappings of people going to a ballot box. Really interesting. And I should mention a, a separate Chatham House project on corruption in Nigeria with, with much relevance to many other countries. Shashank, what do you make of this picture 20 and a bit years on from the invasion? Well, I think it's really clear to see the ripples that it set right across the region. Um, but I also think it had a profound knock-on effect on America's view of itself and in the world. And we can go on and on about the ripple effects in Syria and and in so many other places, which were also then compounded by the Arab Spring and the violence that wrought and the instability that wrought. But I'm also thinking about the effect it had on the countries it waged it. So for instance, when I think back at 2013 and this tortured debate about whether to enforce Obama's red line on Syria's use of chemical weapons, that debate was profoundly shaped by bitterness and disillusionment around the utility of military force and America's role in the Middle East. The Biden administration's policy, and Biden you know, was a, was, a, was a senator at the time playing an active role in these debates and then played a role as vice president in American strategy in the surge and in, other, uh, in the Afghan surge and in other parts of the region. That was shaped, this desire to try and, and de-weight America's presence in the Middle East, to try to keep things with Iran on an even keel, to try to work towards normalization. It was shaped by a desire to try to redress some of that overweighting that America had in the Middle East. And more broadly, when I talk to people in the Pentagon, they look back at this as a calamity during which their own armed forces were run down, readiness fell precipitously, the army was, you know, its equipment was bent out of shape, and all of that period, China spent building up its military forces. So it had such a huge effect on America's role of itself in the world, the way it thinks about military power, the way it thinks about the Middle East, and quite tangibly, its readiness for other scenarios in other parts of the world, which is precisely why to find ourselves in a picture today where we have two American aircraft carrier strike groups sitting in the Eastern Med is such a profoundly difficult situation for the US to be in because it now has to decide, is this a temporary aberration or does it have to unwind some of the Middle East policy that that took us to this place? And I think it is yet to decide the answer to that question. I think that's exactly right. And that's before you consider the third front, if you like, against uh, China and um, that conceivably could open up. But anyway, the presence that the US wants to have there. It has been a big shock to the US. It's, uh, as you said, in its vision of what it wants to do. I agree with what you, the tone of what you hear in the Pentagon of it is a calamity. 
you hear something different sometimes from officials. We tried. We offered our democracy. The world didn't want it. But in any way, it doesn't amount to a, a retreat. And you're seeing that in Congress over the debate over Ukraine. Sanam, you spend a good deal of time in the U.S. as well as the Middle East. How do you see the U.S.'s commitment to the region going forward? Um, I think the U.S., uh, the Biden administration in, in particular, is in a extremely difficult position. Uh, you know, J- Jake Sullivan's infamous foreign affairs article, where he let's just t- take people into that he is the national security advisor and brought out this thing. <laughs> yeah. in, I think in, in, in April, which had more impact than these things suddenly do sometimes do. Yes, uh, but you know, he laid the groundwork for the Biden administration's sort of overconfidence about the de-escalatory um, strategy that they were supporting across the region. I myself was in Washington just a few months ago and was really struck by the distance and detachment felt across the administration. Um, and, you know, I found it rather alarming because uh, for those of us that work on the Middle East and, and follow all of the um, trends um, top down and bottom up, uh, you know, we feel uh, not much has really changed, uh, just the optics of diplomacy have very much shifted. So I think the U.S. Uh, and Biden himself um, is going to uh, be really troubled by the war. I think it's going to impact him going into this election period. I think he is going to have to uh, take a bit bolder position and, and reinforce America's role, not just towards Israel, but um, broader across the region. Uh, to traditional Arab partners in order to showcase American commitments, diplomacy, um, and balance, um, without which I do very much worry uh, will further diminish America's influence in the region and allow countries like the Islamic Republic of Iran to continue to be a destabilizer. Given the picture of everything in flux that we've talked about, what is the outlook for Iran's power and the constraints on it now? There is, I think, still the recognition that um, uh, Gulf Arab states want normalization with Israel to stay on the table. They've they've suspended it. It's been paused. It cannot continue while this war continues. But it's there. And as long as that remains on the table, as long as the possibility of building on the Abraham Accords is present, as long as that serves even as a restraint on Israel's policy, which it may or may not do, I think that offers a certain degree of pushback, of countering to Iran's influence. Not a complete uh, counterweight, but something of a restraint. So that's something to watch very closely in the the weeks and months ahead. Something else that came up in our discussions yesterday at the Iraq conference is that Iraq is in an interesting position right now. And, and, and we could actually talk about looking at an opportunity in which it's one of the only countries where the Americans and the Iranians are connected through political networks. It's one of the only countries where they both have a presence, a strong presence. And so there is an opportunity here to, you know, not just talk about the military and, 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 and the economics and the sanctions, but messaging. Iraq, they're both there and, and they both have the same networks. And so this came up yesterday and, and I think there, there needs to be more done on this, 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 this idea that um, they don't talk to each other, you know, the great Satan versus uh, the Iranians. That's not true. They've, they've, in, in different ways in Iraq in the last 20 years, they've worked together. They worked together fighting ISIS. And we know there, are, there is precedent of, of, of these communications and working through and navigating these networks. 
Renard, thank you very much for that last point. We've had an interesting line through this show, a lot of talk in the beginning about the uh, carefulness with which Iran is calculating this, and so a degree of hope that it wouldn't escalate, then quite a lot of gloom about how stuck and troubled things are in the region. And then you've just given us some tips right at the end uh, about how things might move forward. And that is going to have to be the end of the show. The US, the UK even may choose to downplay the Middle East in their published security strategies, but we won't at Chatham House. A big thank you to my guests, Shashank Joshi, Sanam Vakil, Renat Mansour. Do follow them all on Twitter. The links are in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all the major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe, and tell us what you think. And to read more from our experts or to find out more about our work or our events, and we've mentioned quite a lot of the work relevant to this, including the excellent Accept Project and the Nigerian Corruption work, or if you want to become a member, and we would really love to have you, or if you want to give it as a Christmas present to family and friends, we are in that season, do visit our website, chathamhouse.org, and you can find all our work there, including, of course, the Middle East and North Africa program, which is rather dominating the front of the website at the moment. That's goodbye for me, Roman Maddox. Thank you for listening.